Welcome back to another episode of the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Strength and Speed owner and Mudgear Battle Alliance Pro, Evan Preparis. I got a guest with me on the line. Before we get to him, though, a quick word from this episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Aurora Heated Apparel. So it's winter, it's cold. If you haven't checked out Aurora, definitely check it out. It's electronically heated apparel. Super nice, keeps you warm. They just released their dual heated uh, jacket. So it's not only like the normal one, the one I have has heating in the front and the back. Uh, they now have ones with heating in the front, back, and the arms. So multiple areas of heat. Great if you're doing tailgating. Great if you're going to a sports game in the winter. Great if you've got your pit crew and you want to keep them warm. Or you just like being warm, you know, driving to and from work and walking around town. It's like being hugged in a warm blanket. Uh, you can check them out over at auroraware.com. O-R-O-R-O-W-E-A-R.com. All right. Joining me on the podcast, I got a friend from work. I got John on the line. John, say hi. Hey, everybody. Cool. I'm going to run through his bio real quick, and then we'll kind of get into what this episode's about. So John Jordan is an Army helicopter pilot and a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's competed at the all-Army level in three different categories, Soldier of the Year, Best Medic, and Combatist Tournament. John's been training martial arts for over 16 years, holds a black belt in Wadurayu Karate, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's competed in many won uh, many local and regional martial arts tournaments, and then due to the nature of his military career, he's trained with many professional MMA and jiu-jitsu competitors all over the world. Currently, he trains at Combative Sports Center in Manhattan, Kansas, under Sean Roberts and Joe the Nose Wilk. Does, does Joe appreciate that nickname? He does. I don't know if you've seen Joe's nose. I think it's been broken a dozen times from all of his MMA fights over the years, but it's it's more of like a badge of honor for him at this point. Gotcha. Yeah. So I, I met Joe last year. We uh first infantry division actually took a bunch of people to NTC and he was one of the guys we took. So I got to hang out with him for about four days. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he's a fun guy. And uh he's one of like the like the OG Midwest MMA uh fighters um before you know MMA was really getting big and there was jujitsu gyms popping up everywhere. Right, right. So I, I met John um uh, met him a little more personally a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were doing some combative training, and uh, he's rolling me up in a ball there. And then we started talking about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and some of the kind of the sports structure of it, how the different organizations and the you know the push for the Olympics and stuff like that. And I was I thought it was really interesting in how it relates to obstacle course racing. So this episode we're going to talk a little bit about his background, about training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and martial arts. And then we're all, kind of the second half of the episode, we're going to focus more on like the structure of the sport and how that relates to OCR and, you know, some of the good things and bad things that might come from that. So I guess let's start with, um, you know, I mentioned a little bit about your background in martial arts. You know, tell us a little bit more like how you got involved and, you know, why you decided to uh, go from karate to Brazilian jiu-jitsu and kind of expand your horizon there. Yeah, so I didn't do any fighting growing up. I I was a uh, runner growing up because, and mostly just because my dad and my brother ran right, and and naturally I just wanted to beat them at whatever they do. So that got me into cross country and track. But uh, in college, I needed a, a PE. I went to Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama, and I couldn't get any of the cool ones. Uh, when I was trying to sign up and so I did karate cause I thought that would be kind of fun, but it wasn't one of like the, you know, like the easy a bowling or like the cool kayaking one that a bunch of my buddies were doing. Um, so trying out karate though, it was, it was pretty fun. You know, I grew up watching, you know, Kung Fu movies and anime and stuff like that. Like a lot of other people and, you know, playing like fighting video games. So I uh, kind of got hooked on it, started keeping up with karate and it, it was a, you know, karate is a traditional style, so you're, you know, you're going to a, a dojo and you got a sensei and you're bowing and wearing a formal uniform and, and learning all the kind of like, uh, like the Eastern philosophy that goes along with that. So it is fun. And uh, we skipped forward a couple of years. I saw UFC Ultimate Fight, like the Ultimate Fighter uh, reality show. And uh, there's a couple of dudes on there. They're like Taekwondo striker type guys. And they got annihilated by <laughs> jujitsu guys. And um, it was, uh, you know, for a lot of people, too, it was kind of a, like a shock to me because growing up, 
you know, all I knew about grappling was like the WWE stuff. And when you're, when you're just messing around with your friends, you know, it's not real, right? You're kind of like, Oh no, you got me right. Oh, you got the pin, you got the tap out. And it's, and it's not real, like damaging moves. And it's kind of like, Oh, well, if you're a tough guy, you can just tough it out. Right. And the moves are fake anyway. So you're not really hurting each other. And so I decided I would go try jujitsu since, uh, I saw Stefan Bonner type, tap out Mike Swick with a triangle choke. And Mike Swick was supposed to be a great striker. Stefan Bonner was like a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. And I was like, all right, this, this stuff looks interesting. I happened to be back home for summer. So I looked up like the best jiu-jitsu school in Atlanta at the time. It was the, uh, the old Jacare from Brazil. So this dude, I didn't know this at the time, like how important this was, right? But uh he was one of the guys, top Matt Larson combatives, helped mm. found like the combative program for the army. He's like a first generation student under Holes Gracie from uh, Brazil. He came to came to Georgia to like, you know, he was one of like those original pioneers, like starting the school, spreading the, the jiu-jitsu everywhere. So I go there at the time, I'm already I was already a fairly competitive brown belt in karate. I've already been like winning some tournaments, thought I was tough. And I just, I got annihilated. It, like, it wasn't close. <laughs> uh, and it was like, you know, it's like a punch to the ego. And it was like eye-opening at the same time. Because, you know, I've been doing these tournaments. And uh, karate tournaments are kind of tough. Uh, there are no, there's no weight classes. There's no age group for them. They're based on belt structure. So I was, you know, competing against, you know, heavyweight adults, whatever. And then I went in. In the jiu-jitsu class, they're nice. You know, they'll pair you up with someone similar size. And, man, just like the the blue belt, purple belt level guys in that gym, uh, they just, like, worked me like a puppet, right? Like, had their, like, did the move of the day, whatever we learned in class, made it look like, you know, I couldn't defend it. And you, you feel like it's like a child fighting an adult, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're, that's, that's a good example. You're, you're, you're defenseless. And, it, and it's frustrating. And, of course, the rule is like, well, I can't punch him. I knew some some good striking from karate, but that's worthless in this world. And so that is really the initial thing that gave me the bug because then I just realized, uh, like, it's I got to learn it, right? Like, it's not optional. It was like the going from <laughs> the bow and arrow to the firearm. I was just yeah. like, wow, these guys, they have a whole other weapon system that – we haven't even touched in the the stuff I was doing. Yeah. You know, so. your journey, your journey sounds a lot like it's basically, I feel like for about 20 years from starting from like UFC one up until about 20 years later, like every martial artist at some point was like, yeah, I need to know grappling. So, you know, anyone who's serious about training martial arts, cause you, you know, when you fight your opponent, he has a vote on what range you end up fighting in. So, you know, and that's what a, Hoist Grace did in the first couple UFCs. He basically closed the gap into the uh, grappling range, and and people didn't know what they were doing. They were like panicking. You know, he'd get in the mount, and people would just panic and like tap out. He's like, he didn't even do anything to them. So, pretty crazy. Stuff. Yeah, and, it, and it's one of those things that it looks it looks very simple. You know, like a dude laying on top of another dude. But uh, these guys have studied it for years, and they've broken it apart, and they know. Oh well, actually, I'm you know. It's very scientific, right? Like I'm putting yes. my knee in this spot. I'm putting my foot in this spot. I'm I'm grabbing this side of his shoulder to stop these moves and gives me access to these other moves. And you're like, oh, okay. So there's there's a whole lot to this that I never knew before. And I just thought it was like, oh, these guys are just rolling around and whatever. You know, I could, I am tough. I could take that. Yeah, and you know the even it, it's like, oh well, the, the hand needs to position, be positioned this way if you're gonna do an arm bar, and like the thumb's got to be up and you know, oh, oh, your wrists are turned out. No, no, they got to be turned in. Otherwise, you're not, you know, you're not cutting off the artery on, on the neck there. So there's a lot of nuance to it that um, I think coming from an, a non-grappling art, it's like, oh, like this is, you know, this single move has like seven sub-steps as opposed to being like throw a punch, you know, and like, you know, throwing a punch is rel- relatively simple. You know, there is, there's a technique to it, but... Uh, there's not as much um, nuance as there is in grappling Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So, you know, it took you, um, yeah, how long just for, how long did it take you to get your, your first degree black belt in uh, karate? 
So karate only took me about three and a half years, um, but it's uh, karate is it's, it's an older, uh, much more traditional style, and it has it's very curriculum based. And so, like a lot of the older martial arts, like that, are and uh, like it, it's written out. You know what you got to right. memorize for each belt rank, and then it's kind of like there's a timeline and there's a belt test. And uh, so, yeah, it's like cool to get a black belt in those those sports, but uh it's it's like dragging your butt through getting a degree right like you can make it if you just keep doing it yeah um, it, it's not really that that hard so now now compare and contrast that to brazilian jiu-jitsu tell us how long that takes or for yeah, you so, so the average time to make it to black belt they say is 10 years it took me about 15 um i, I would love to blame like you know the army and uh you know being stationed in weird places where i couldn't train and stuff like that but uh, it's it's map time, right? Uh, so jujitsu is very, very competency based. If you don't get better and progress, like you you don't get promoted to the next belt rank, uh, which is a it's a better system, right? Especially for for keeping the martial art respected against other martial arts. Uh, you know, when you meet a guy that's a blue belt, purple belt in jujitsu, when you roll with them, like you know, like they've they've got that skill level that they put in the time to to earn. And uh, for me, I, I told myself starting out because uh, I was training a bunch, but I was still doing, still working out a bunch. And then when I joined the Army, I was still doing a, lots of Army stuff, right? And I've done a, a few different Army jobs that would be pretty intense. And I was like, well, I'll make it, you know, one, two days a week. I'll, I'll get some jujitsu in here or there, and I'll, I'll keep progressing. But uh, I put myself on a much lower uh, much longer timeline for uh, for getting better and moving around also kind of helps and kind of hurts you uh, you see a lot of different techniques out of different schools but then and different instructors are looking for different things to promote you so you know I'd be training in Korea and they'd be all looking at competition type stuff and I'd be you know come to Kansas and they're all very like hard-nosed MMA focused school so uh, it's just like different styles and kind of how it is respected in other schools. Um, so yeah, definitely the long path for me. Uh, but I hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm still young enough. I'll, I've got another like 20 years or so of training in me and I'll get better from here and keep growing as a black belt. Nice. Yeah. So for, if you're just joining us for the first time, this is primarily an obstacle course racing focused podcast, but you know, the concept is we, we bring on people from other sports because, you know, obstacle course racing is relatively new. I'd say about a decade old, uh, but fitness and improving and mastering a complex skill is old. And uh, so you, we can steal lessons from other sports and other complex skills and com- competitive aspects and pull them into the obstacle course racing world. So, yeah, just for our listeners, have you done any obstacle course races? So I've done a couple actual like OCRs through uh, the Spartan race uh, guys. And then um, through the military, I've, I've done um, some weird obstacles, right? Like there's the river course we run, you know, that every base has one. And you do those for, you know, different schools or I've done them with the different competitions, doing like the soldier to your stuff, best medic stuff. And then I've done a bunch of weird, you know, the army we like putting together. So we have, you know, mixed matched obstacles or we throw in like different, uh, different soldier type tasks like or combat skills mixed in and then with the medical uh, and like the best medic stuff we did a lot of the litter obstacle course which is basically you know your your standard obstacle course race however you have a patient with you right and so it's either a dummy or a live person and you and your team or your battle buddy you got to figure out how to not only navigate the obstacle but get the the patient through without harm to them and so that's it's that's kind of a fun one to have to figure out and, and navigate as you, you go through different events. So. It broke up a little bit towards the end, but yeah, you were saying about the medical one. That's a fun one to do and uh, navigate through. There's, we've had two obstacle course race companies that I know of that have done sort of like a buddy team type uh, OCR. There was one called the Tandem Race where I think you were actually tied to each other. I think that lasted like a year or two back in 2014, 2015. And then KC Timber Challenge actually has in April a Duo Dare Challenge, which just some of the obstacles are kind of buddy team based, so you're supposed to run it with a friend. So I'll be I'll be heading out to that one in Bonner Springs, Kansas, once that one 
takes off. I believe it's April 19th or something like that. But yeah, the, you know, the, the army obstacle course is very, um, you know, a lot of crossover points with, you know, sport OCR because it's essentially compromised running. You're running and you're doing some sort of high heart rate activity in between. And then you're, you're back into that running mode. So yeah, good stuff. So uh, talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, you know, any kind of crossover lessons you think that would apply to the world of obstacle course racing? Yeah. So I think, well, the obstacle course and jujitsu are kind of one of those unique things that you can't always do it right. Just for the training. Like, I mean, like for a running, just solely running race, you can just go run. Right. And if you're a power lifter, you can just go power lift, you know, if you've got the equipment, uh, but it's hard to mimic, um, you know, that event that's, it's going to be unique, right? Like you haven't been to that, that OCR or that, that tournament before you're going to face different obstacles, different people, and you can't necessarily prepare specifically for it. Right. And you can't, you also can't do like, all right, well, well, if I'm just going for completion, you know, I'm, I'm running those miles. I know I'm going to make the miles when I show up the day of. So it's kind of the fun thing like that, that unknown. And then there's that, that chance of failure, right? Like you might not be able to do it all. And uh, for jujitsu, like, you know, you might get, the previous champion in your bracket <laughs> and like <laughs> first round. So, you know, you might just have to like give it your all and go for the gold that first time. And if you don't make it, you don't make it, you know, so training outside of, of the sport, you have to get creative, right? Especially if you don't, you don't have enough money to build your own like crazy rigs at home. Right. And then uh, for jujitsu, like most people, can't afford fancy mats to keep at their house or like a thousand dollar grappling dummy, even though they're, they're super cool. And uh, during COVID people were, were buying them, but uh, you have to improvise, you know, how you're going to train for your sport. So uh, one of the things I've done uh, with my conditioning stuff for jujitsu is, um, well, I've kind of like boiled it down to, not only I think what works for grappling, right? So that means doing things that improve grip strength, that use the entire body, you know, those kind of general principles, but also like, what do I actually do? Um, like my, my jujitsu game, right? Like how I, how I like approaching a sweep or submission and like the, the muscle groups I use. So I, I've, I do a lot of, uh, so high repetition, low weight deadlifts because that, you know, that posterior chain and that deadlift motion, um, when you start like dissecting how you can do jujitsu moves, I'm like, oh, okay, well I can use this obviously for picking up my opponent's leg. Then I can use the same, same type deal for throwing their legs to the other side and passing the guard. Um, I'm going to use it for extending my body to control their upper body. And then when I'm going for extending an arm for an arm bar or applying pressure to a choke, once again, I'm expanding myself using that posterior chain. So uh, trying to feed things into that in conditioning outside the sport to better prepare for, you know, you want that like as close to direct transfer as you can get um, from your, your outside training. So it's, you know, it's using bands, it's using, kettlebells I've, I've been slowly like amassing my own like home gym with some of that stuff uh, i hate i hate doing some of my jiu-jitsu workouts in the normal gym because i'm sure it looks kind of dumb you know to other people who are your traditional power lifters because i like uh like cable machines i'll sit on the ground and pull the cables down because a lot of times it's what you're doing you know if you're playing an open guard you're you're reaching up and trying to control your opponent's head and uh, you you want it to to mimic that real world application for you, and then uh, you know doing different grip strength, which I'm you know I'm sure you you've played around with a lot for all the different climbing events and stuff you got to do. And like for jujitsu, it's you know it's not necessarily holding a weight, so like holding a barbell, right? Um, that might be an unrealistic grip for me, right? Like I can never hold someone's arm that well. Yeah, I'm going arm bar. The arm is, it's odd shaped. It's, it's a little different for everybody. Um, they're, they're turning it. It's moving in your hand while you're trying to control it. And so a lot of the stuff that I'll do at home, you know, I'm, 
I either take an old gi top or a towel and you're, you're putting that over the, the pull-up bar to do your pull-ups or you're around your bar to do your pulls and getting a better feel of having to compensate your grip, uh, having to, you know, kind of work through if it's a little off, right? Like one hand has a good grip, one hand doesn't. Uh, that shouldn't stop you from being able to control a limb. And uh, then there's, you know, like the isometric like hold, which is not not in most of your programs uh, people are going to do for training, right? Like that's not your your get big workout. But um, you find out in, in grappling real quick that, you know, people can hold their breath. And if you're going for a, a guillotine, you know, cross-collar choke, something like that, if you squeeze, but you only squeeze for about 30 seconds, uh, like some dudes will literally hold their breath. And then when you let go, they'll exhale and they're fine. They'll keep fighting, you know, like stubborn people. So you wind up, you know, doing your like chin over the bar pull-ups and holding those or heavy rows in with a kettlebell or a band and timing yourself. I try to do like, you know, one minute holds at least stuff like that. I'll do some two minute holds on lighter weight. Cause I figure, you know, under stress, most people can't hold their breath for a, in that one to two minute range. So if I can build that kind of isometric squeeze for myself outside of training, uh, that's going to help my submission rate go up against the, those guys who are they're you know, they're trying to, to psych me out, right? Like uh, they're waiting for that release in my muscle tension to escape. Uh, but yeah, just trying to come up with things outside of the, the gym when I can't make it to training, right? When I'm traveling, can't, I don't have training partners or mats, uh, how I can, you know, simulate the, the feedback you get from another person in live training. And it, it can be tough. Yeah, no, I, I loved, I love that. Everything you said, I mean, it, it sounds like all the stuff I recommend for obstacle course racing, right? So you, you're mimicking a lot of the movements and, you know, instead of using the traditional weight attached, like for pulling machines, I recommend bringing like rig grips and kind of getting used to putting your hand in those odd positions that are required for crossing a rig and pulling down using those. Um, I do do them in public gyms and people do stare. I just, <laughs> I just stopped. <laughs> I stopped caring long ago and I, I'll show up with a bag full of like random rig parts and just start like setting things up in a gym and people are staring at me and I'm like, eh, whatever. So, uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it, it is, um, at the first couple of times I did it, I felt like super awkward. And then I, at some point I just stopped caring, but yeah, they, uh, yeah, really like some of a lot of the things you were saying. And, you know, I think on a, a lot of people for like grip strength, at least in OCR will be like, Oh, I got these grippers and I'm just like pumping out reps on the gripper. And it's like, well, that's not simulating what you what you do in a race. Like when I grab something in a race, I I squeeze it and I hold it, right? So if you, you know, my recommendation for people who love to use those grippers is you squeeze and you hold for you know five seconds because that's at least how long you'll be up on a on a rig, you know, before you transfer and go to the next hold. So yeah, yeah, and I've uh, I've experimented with so many. I'm sure you, you probably have too. So many different grip trainers, you know, when they come out and everyone uh, they'll they'll hit the online market right, and everyone's like, "Oh, this is the next best thing." And most of them are based around that that you know the dynamic squeeze, right? And some of them are like, "Oh, well, this is a what a ten pound grip, or this one's a you know equivalent to however many pounds of squeeze." Yep. But I really, yeah, in my my line of competition it's like i need i just need the steady squeeze uh for the long haul like if i could grip somebody for an entire 10 minute match and never get tired i might do it right because uh every time you let go of a grip you give an opportunity for your opponent to to move to for them to control it or to use it against you um and it's one of the things the judo guys excel at they're they're big about gripping heavy and fast and then not letting go. They're very stubborn and they don't really have to because they can just throw and they can keep the same grips. A lot of times uh, for jujitsu, like you're, you generally can't keep the initial grips because you've got to, you want to move to a choke or a submission, right? Just, just knocking a dude over on his shoulders for like a, a pin or a throw is not going to do it. But uh, I don't even know how many grips I, grip trainers I've run through now. I have, I was keeping like a box of them, you know, and I let my kids play with them uh, for fun. But uh, I really, I just keep coming back to, you know, like a, like a gi or a towel just thrown over a pull-up bar. You know, that seems to be like the, the old standby that keeps on working for me. 
Yeah, I mean that's the most specific, so that's what makes the most sense. And um, I do. I have I, I have a bunch of groupers as well, and I I rarely use them to be honest with you. Um, but you know, like I said, if if, you have, if people do like that, one, I recommend holding it, and two, <laughs> treat it as like part of an actual workout. Like, you know, I think some people are like oh, I'll just leave it in my car and just do fifty reps on the way to work or something. It's like well. No, like it should be part of your workout. Like a, this is the next exercise I'm doing. I'm doing, you know, gripper strength and I'm going to hold it for whatever, you know, five, five second holds each, et cetera. So uh, talk to me a little bit about like the mental, um, like kind of mindset going into a jujitsu match and even mindset like mid-match. So for, for jujitsu, it can be, it can be different. Usually if you're just doing a tournament, especially if you're just like a regular competitor, um, you're just trying to trying to have confidence in your skill. And it, it's like a strange thing, right? Because uh, you might be, you might be the best guy in your gym. Uh, you might be beating people on a regular basis who are, who are, who are good. And they're also competing or you might not, right? Like you might be a, a mid-level dude in your gym. You're starting out and, uh, it, it's tough when you get beat by other people going in this competition and everyone's, you know, you have, you've never trained with them before. You don't, you don't know what kind of moves they do and ha- trying to keep confidence in like, Hey, I know, like, I know our game plan, what we do at my gym and what works for me and just sticking to that. Um, and then a lot of jujitsu, I, I really like the analogy of an argument uh, people say, you know, you're arguing the position you're, or you're being stubborn, and, and that can be it a lot, right? So after that initial mindset of just having confidence, implementing your game, uh, and, that, and that might work, right? Like you might go into a match. Um, I think I've had like a handful of matches where I've gone in, got the throw I wanted, got the pass I wanted, and then got the submission I wanted. It usually doesn't go that way, right? Like the guy – counters maybe he you you catch him off guard with the first move but then they they throw their best thing at you second move something like that and then you got to fight through and uh it becomes this kind of argumentative like all right what am i going to give up uh versus what do i want um and you're trying to keep this all uh super quick right um you're trying to do everything by kind of like your muscle memory and keeping your uh like, you know, you're like your OODA loop decision timeline as short as possible. Because the quicker you make your decisions when you're going through your your technique, uh, progressing towards the submission, the better, right? The faster you progress through these positions, uh, the more your opponent gets behind and the more you'll, you'll win. Um, the hard part becomes, especially for me, is when you're mid, mid to late match with someone um, maybe they're, maybe they're up on points, maybe they're not, but, uh, you're in like a somewhat neutral position and no one, neither one of you want to give an inch, right? Uh, the other guy's not doing anything dumb. And there's always kind of like a, an easy way you could trick the guy. You can bait him. You could kind of relax. You could say, oh, well, maybe I'll let him think he's getting this escape, or maybe I'll let him grab my arm and, and think he's going to get this arm bar. And for me, I, I try to be patient and avoid that. I used to be, uh, especially like in the gym, training with people, even in the competitive mode, just uh, like, all right, well, I'll let him, I'll let him go for this arm bar and I'm going to escape, right? I'm going to use this against him and I'm going to get out. And that only works against, you know, people who don't have the skill to finish the move. When you, you run into those better fighters who, oh, that happens to be their move. You just gave them the win, right? Mm. And so kind of a hard learning point for me has been during a match is that like patience, right? Like I know I'm not winning yet, but I don't want to, I should not do anything dumb. I should not give up anything easy. And I, and if I got to make this guy like suffer or wait him out, kind of like, I'm, you know, it's like you're staring at another person waiting for them to talk. You got to wait. And, uh, and then that's usually when the other person, um, they make the mistake, right? Like they, they get impatient. They they try that move that maybe it's a low percentage move, but they think it's going to work on you, and that gives you the opening for the solid, the solid counter and uh, the, the the progress you were looking for. And then usually, like the mindset at the end of the match, 
if you get once once you're like honed into that submission or that uh that good control position and you're you're up on points and you're in position to finish with a good submission you know it's just you just got to do it it just you just kind of block out yeah i know i'm tired yeah i know my forearms my forearms are burning right like the grips are done you know the breathing's done but i just got to finish this match right if i if i don't finish it now you know it's going to be worse right it's better to just try to power through that that last that final wall and get it over with and win uh and th- then to la- leave it up to the judges judges decisions are always can always be a coin toss especially if it was a close on points match and y- you never want to do that especially if you've prepared really hard for a match and you know you're better than the other guy you want to you want to win definitively with the submission so it, it's worth pushing through even at the end of the round if that's what it takes Nice. Yeah, no, the, uh, a lot of good comparisons we can make there about, you know, especially with mandatory completion obstacle course racing, there's the, mat- the race is never over until essentially you cross the finish line or someone crosses the finish line. So, you know, we always make sure, you know, focus on doing all the obstacles and getting them first try and uh, maintaining a good pace. And, you know, if the other guy messes up, he messes up and you might sweep ahead. And if not, then, you know, sometimes that's the way it is. So let's. I want to switch over and start talking about some of the structure of jujitsu. So tell us about like the organizations and the kind of the, the major uh, competitors and players as far as like um, brands and how those kind of align and compare to each other. Um, and then we can kind of talk a little bit about Olympics stuff like that. Okay, so within the jujitsu world, um, the the two main versions of competition are the gi, which is wearing the traditional, you know, like the traditional kimono, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's the thick martial arts uniform. That's what we call the gi. And then there's the the very appropriately named no gi, which is just the opposite, right? It's the t-shirt and shorts or no shirt, rash guard, uh, whatever. It's kind of like the slick version of fighting. And so within these two major uh, types of competition, uh, they've their own tournaments have kind of sprung up. So the the biggest one for the gi tournaments is the IBJJF, which is the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation. And they they're kind of the, one of the older brands, right? Like they've they've been running tournaments in Brazil and America for a while. They were the ones that came up to the the states and started what they call Pan Ams, which was really it was like a national level tournament. And then they started wearing, uh, running, uh, you know, they're Portuguese based on it. Like it's mostly Brazilian guys who founded it. They started running the Moondials, which is like their world. And so they were the ones originally who were kind of like crowning people world champion. Right. And, and they were the biggest organization. So I think they are probably the right one, even though you, there's so many other ones nowadays and would, that want to claim, Oh, well, this is our national championship. This is our worlds. I think most people would recognize in the gi, the IBJJF is like, that is the national or, or world level competitor organization that you would want to win to consider yourself a, a national champion or world champion. And they do, so they do national events, they do world events, and then they they do like a uh, like an open in most of the major cities. Uh, they do, and it's kind of like qualifiers as well, so you can get enough points to go to the uh, the world event because uh, the brackets can be limited. It's not it's not as open as like a race, right, where you can just run big heats. Um, they do most of them are single elimination, so that that helps, right? When you run a double elimination tournament, you wind up having you know, two full brackets running, which is, you know, twice twice the mat space, twice the judges and referees and all that. So single definitely streamlines it. But uh, a lot of these tournaments, they'll have around 16 people per bracket, right? And they cut in half every, every way down until the last two are fighting for first place. So that won't be a lot, right? Like if you're looking at the world, like the that 16 to 18 people they let, go to the worlds each year it can be a, a small amount uh, so qualifying for that just qualifying is a big deal right so they're the biggest one in the gi they also run no gi uh, tournaments but 
they have a more restrictive rule set, uh, especially for the lower belt ranks. And that's led people to going to some of the other organizations that have more open rule sets. Uh, and by restrictive rule set, I mean they, they limit um, what you can wear. They, they want you to wear like certain types of rash guards and stuff. And they limit the types of moves you can do and some of the scoring. And it, a lot of people would argue it doesn't, it doesn't favor uh, the better fighter in, in no gi, but uh, in the gi, they do this very similar rule set. And it's kind of seen as safe in the gi, and everyone kind of likes it. So they're okay for that. Um, for Nogi, the biggest uh, organization out there right now is the ADCC, which is the Abu Dhabi Combat Club. And so it started in Abu Dhabi. It's uh, been put on by, there was a, a sheik who is like famous for loving, you know, combat sports, right? And especially jujitsu. And what he wanted to do was start getting all the grapplers from the world together, kind of like early UFCs, and to, and to see who was the best, right? So if you go back and watch the early Abu Dhabis, it's it's really cool. You know, they, you got you got the Brazilians, obviously, who can who are doing jujitsu. Um, you got some just straight up wrestlers from America in there, who are, you know, like they they know some joint lock stuff, but they're doing very, you know, what we would think of as like collegiate style wrestling you've got some judo guys some uh like from other countries some other types of like lesser known wrestling styles and just seeing how they clash obviously it's been that organization the winners have been dominated by the brazilians for a while uh they you know they take jiu-jitsu very seriously they've figured out all the stuff and then over the time the adcc has grown in popularity um mainly because they, they do better prize money for the fighters. Uh, most jiu-jitsu tournaments don't do great prizes. They don't do good prize money. Uh, you know, they, they'll do a medal, and it's like bragging rights, right? So if you want to you wanna teach or run a school or te- uh, sell uh, DVDs or online instructionals, you know, that's how you get your, your credentials to do so. But ADCC started actually paying dudes. Uh, so that was one of the big draws early on, and – they've been fairly well organized and that's led to a lot of the expansion and kind of people wanting more nogi matches because they can be more exciting. So they, they lend themselves to a more uh, viewer friendly audience for going online and people either purchasing, you know, like pay-per-views or watching online matches. Uh, The gi can be a lot slower. So for our OCR athletes, you'll already see a bunch of similarities with, multiple world championships, multiple national championships, some holding more prestige than others. And then on top of that, some of them kind of attracting the bigger names or, you know, bigger opportunities via larger prizes or, or, uh, you know, cash payments to their athletes. And then you'll also see another comparison, the, you know, the interest in the Middle East. So uh, Spartan World Championships has been in the Middle East the last like, two years or last year and, and this coming year. So you see the influence of the Middle East there. And then finally, the comparison about, well, well, this rule set doesn't necessarily favor the best athletes. You know, again, the comparison between uh, OCR World Championships, which is mandatory completion. You you have to do all the obstacles to make it to the finish line and win prize money. And uh, Spartan, which uh, typically has a, a very great draw of athletes that are very good at mount running. Uh, but you can actually burpee out of obstacles. So there's a couple obstacles you can you can fail and do burpees and still w- theoretically win uh, if you have a good enough lead on people as a runner. Now on the men's side, the, t- the men's typically uh, have to do the, the the winners will end up doing every obstacle, and even on the female side, the people who win typically end up doing basically every obstacle. Um, so you, you occasionally get someone in the top that has to burpee uh, on their way to a championship. But yeah, a lot of a lot of similarities I can see already. Um, so yeah, jump back over to John and, uh, you know, anything else you want to add about the, the multiple organizations? Uh, no, just said like, well, there's not really one that's better than the other one. Um, it, yeah, and I'm sure you guys probably see this because the problem is the competitors themselves kind of pick and choose the ones they like. So you never really get, a, you know, like you would want this dream tournament, right? Like I'm sure you would want this dream race with all the top guys and they would fight it out, 
right? And then that year, that tournament, that would be the winner, right? And uh, and everyone would would know. And that's one of the big problems with all these different brands. And, and there's a bunch of sub-brands running around the States and trying to start up. And it kind of like spreads everyone out so much that uh, you, you got to be careful when you meet someone. And they're like, oh, well, I'm a five-time national champion, you know, two-time world champion. And you look at the tournaments they've won and you're like, okay, well, nah, that's maybe, right? Like a couple of these are legit, a couple of these not so much. Yeah. Uh, you know, it kind of dilutes um, – you know, the, the sport a little bit and, uh, uh, kind of hyperinflates a lot of people's like fighting resumes. Do, how, what, what would you say the percentage of crossover is like for, for OCR, you know, a, a lot of the big names will do OCR world championships and Spartan world championships. Um, and then some will cross over to the 24 hour, I would say world championships, which is world's toughest mutter. Uh, that one's a little bit more niche. And then on like the ninja side, you get a, even a smaller percentage of crossover there. Um, so, so like what percentage between ADCC and IBJ, IBJ, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably around like a 60 to 70%. We'll do both. Okay. So um, that's, I think that's about comparable just off of like top of my head comparison. Yeah. A lot of them specialize and then, uh, it's, it seems uh, like a lot of the no-gi guys, originally the thought was, well, the gi guys, they're going to take off the, the gi and they, they don't even know where to grip, right? They can't fight. Um, but that's not true. They, they perform really well uh, no-gi. And uh, the, what I've heard from some of the competitors is a lot of the tournaments they go to, um, they'll do a gi and a no-gi division. So some of these guys coming up training, they're getting in twice the tournaments the no-gi guys are. Because mm. the no-gi guys, they're doing, you know, they're doing a bracket on Saturday. Well, the gig guy, he's doing Saturday and Sunday or maybe Friday as well. And so they're, they're just, they're building more experience. So they've, they usually compete really well. Um, there's been a handful of notable ones that run into no gi and, you know, getting wrecked by people who are really good at leg locks because they never saw that before because it's against the rules. But uh, it's, it's rare for the no gi guys to jump into some of the gi after they've competed at just a, just nogi at a high level and but a lot of that once again is because the nogi stuff is is where the money is right it's where the big shows are uh like the the super fights where it's just the one one v one matches and and like the big money tournaments so a lot of those guys you know you hear them talk about it like you know why would i even bother doing the gi right get, to go get like a five dollar medal you know i don't i don't even want it so mm. interesting so is there a overall governing body because on the obstacle course racing side there's been some talk of like creating a governing body or creating like um the essentially the equivalent of like if you do triathlon the usa triathlon which is like an overall organization that you pay money to um and they're so they act as some sort of governing structure uh no so i mean like yeah that, I, i've seen that before like usa judo is kind of like that in the the judo federation but uh, no, for jujitsu, so IBJJF tries to be that, um, and they they do they'll they do like a membership fee, and they tr they've tried to like kind of like like vet people, right? So you're you're making sure people actually are the belt rank they are, and all that stuff, um, and that's that's good and bad, really. I mean, if if you're not that good, you're gonna get beat at the tournament. So it's kind of at the end of the day, it's kind of a moot point. Mm. Um, it's, it's good to keep out maybe some of the sandbaggers, but there is no real way to stop a sandbagger. If they say they're, they say they're just a blue belt. You can't really tell them they're not. Um, but for the other tournaments, uh, they don't really do that. So they're not doing any kind of organizational uh, type outreach or trying to, um, you know, ad adopt a, a standard rule set for everybody. So it's kind of up in the air. And then you also will get schools who are actively against the IBJJF, right? So, like, a lot of schools I've trained at, they don't like them because they're like, well, they just, they just want your money, you know, for – they're not really verifying your belt. They just want money. And then uh, – mm, Sounds familiar. You know, and then they don't, they don't pay out a lot, right, for their tournaments. So, yes, you get the prestige of winning them. But, um, I mean, if you get your arm broken in the finals, you know, like, you're going home with medical bills at the end of the day. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So, have you um, any other thoughts on like a governing body? Like, do you 
do you want as a you know BJJ player? Do you want a governing body, or you you'd rather have it kind of more free like it is now? So the the only thing I think would be good about fixing if we had a governing body is the the performance enhancing drug stuff. Okay. So um, at the competitive level, it's a it's a big issue, um, and a couple of the the big fight promoters have just come out and said like, hey, we don't test our guys, it's fine. And so it almost needs to be like, all right, cool. If, if we're saying that, we're saying that. Uh, for these organizations, because the IBJJF still does, they do limited drug testing. And they've had issues with people, like, not showing up for the finals day of matches because the drug testing team showed up and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I think if we're going to do that, you know, maybe we split the categories, right? Like, there's the, the natural category, and there's the enhanced category. <laughs> and if people want to, they want to take that health risk and put crazy stuff in their bodies... You know, just so they can be a super athlete for a couple of years, you know, fine. If they want to accept that risk, it's on them. But then it's it's it it looks like to me like it puts a bunch of pressure on the young guys who want to be competitive and want to have a career in in MMA or or jujitsu. Like almost like, well, I gotta do it, right? Yeah. I won't be competitive if I don't. And then these organizations are out there actively like. ADCC and fight to win and a bunch of these other guys, they actively say like, Hey, we don't, we don't do testing. You know, we're, we're here to put on a show. It's entertainment. And I get that. That's how they make their revenue. Right. And they can keep, they can grow the sport and they can reward the fighters, but it, it does create a culture of that, like pressure to, okay, well, everybody's going to have to do it in order to keep up because, you know, otherwise the big steroid monsters, they're just going to keep on winning and you'll never make it. Yeah. Now, I mean that that's essentially the model that uh, bodybuilding. I don't know how familiar you are with bodybuilding, but that's what this model bodybuilding uses. Which the the IB IB my confused IBFF IB the IBBF International Bodybuilding Federation doesn't drug test, or they sometimes they say they drug test, but it's for like extreme diuretics, or it's for like cocaine, or it's some random stuff that um, is, is not necessarily it's not testosterone, it's not HGH stuff like that. So you have these these drugged up uh, bodybuilders on stage. And then there's a separate brands that are natural, that are all natural. Uh, and then there's like brands that are like half natural, I'll say, because they're like, Oh, well you, as long as you haven't taken something in the last year or two, then you, you're good. Um, and the, the trickle down effect, like you said, is if you're growing up and you're a young kid and you want to pursue a career in, in this sport, or even just like a high level hobby in that sport, and all the top people are taking drugs, then essentially it trickles down to the, you know, the high school kids where it's like, okay, well now we all have to start taking drugs because that's what the pros are doing. And, you know, if I want to make it that far, um, that's what I'm going to have to do. And, you know, if we look at a large enough sample size, the, the people who are very well trained and taking drugs uh, will, you know, win out of the people who are just very well trained. So yeah, good insight there. Uh, Olympics. Let's talk about Olympics. Are there a pu- is there a push to get Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the Olympics? And any thoughts so it, on that? So it it comes and goes. It was a big push when the Olympics were going to be in Brazil, right? And everyone was like, "Well, it's you know this is the year we're going to get it in." Um, but uh, no. <laughs> so because there's these different governing bodies and no one can agree on what the rule set should be or what, who, who, you know, is the real world champion. Um, they're all uh, kind of against the Olympics because they all kind of know, uh, the Olympics are, are like the most prestigious, you know, athletic event out there in the world. And if you tell someone, you know, I'm an Olympic gold medalist versus I'm a, uh, you know, uh, I J 80, whatever, medalist um people will wait one over the other and that'll become the event that people train for they prepare for and whatever rule set uh those guys start adopting that that'll be the one that trickles down people start training like that to prepare you know for the olympics uh so a lot of the grapplers like the pro guys and and guys who run some of the larger organizations have like they've publicly come out against you know, jujitsu going in the Olympics. And they're like, oh, it'll be bad for the sport. 
And I don't understand that aside from them making less money, you know, because I feel like it would only increase exposure of the sport. It would give it more legitimacy. Um, You would see other countries competing in it and it would, it would help the sport grow at the end of the day. And especially for something as basic as grappling, right? Like it's, it's, it's a branch of wrestling, which is, you know, one of the oldest sports. Uh, so it's weird to see this anti, I would say a lot of the, the higher up jujitsu guys are anti Olympics of getting mm-hmm. it in there, which is, which is bizarre. Um, but you know, then on the other hand, they'll complain about, oh, well, you know, we just got to get out there more and, you know, you know, educate the public and, you know, the, the sport will take off if we do, right? If we could just figure out a way to, to cover it better and, and educate people. But, you know, then they actively fight against it when it comes to, you know, well, their organization's going to make less money if we do this. So, but I, I think it would be a net good for the sport if, if they join the Olympics. There are plenty of other sports in the Olympics that I don't think are quite as intense or um, as big practiced around the world. Cause a lot of the, you know, like a lot of the countries I've been in uh, stationed in or deployed in, uh, I can always find a jujitsu gym to go train at. It's like a, it's like an international language, right? Fighting. And man, it's, it's getting, it's getting bigger, especially, you know, with the younger group that's growing up with UFC. Um, and it's, it, it probably won't eclipse a lot of the other sports out there, but it's definitely got room for expansion. And uh, once, you know, people, you know, learn about it more and see it, you know, it'll, it'll get up there with some of the other just recreational club sports people do. So I would, I would think it would be, you know, Olympic level interest around the planet. Yeah. Now it's, it's definitely grown. I remember looking for a jujitsu gym in, it must've been around 2003. Uh, I took martial arts training for the summer and I was looking for a jujitsu gym. Couldn't find one in like, I was on Long Island, which is a very densely populated area and I couldn't find one. And now it seems like there's one in every city, like across the nation. So um, definitely growing in the last 20 years. And some interesting comments on some of the Olympic stuff. I think the OCR, there's a there's some factions that are really pushing for the Olympics. Um, you know, it definitely would bring more attention to the sport in general. Uh, the problem with OCR and the Olympics is, again, we'd have to standardize the obstacles, standardize the distance, standardize the terrain. So I think it would look a little more like steeplechase with OCR obstacles on the side instead of, like, hurdles and, you know, water pits, stuff like that. So... Um, but yeah, interesting. And, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the day, the Olympics is a business. So they're, they're looking at whatever they think they can make money. I, I would assume jujitsu would fall pretty well into their model though, because it doesn't take up a lot of space per se. Right. So like, I think OCR doesn't work well because it requires a lot of space. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons you don't see like ultra running in the Olympics because it requires a lot of space and time. Uh, so it seems it seems like more of the combat sports should end up in the Olympics, especially with like the roots of like pancreation uh, and wrestling and boxing being all Olympic sports, you know, back from you know six hundred, you know, BC. So I don't know. Just just some thoughts there for people to chew on and mull over there. Yeah. Yeah, I think for the Olympics, like you could you could run the jujitsu right where they do judo or wrestling, right? <laughs> it's already basically yeah, it's already got, it's already got the stadium. You just yeah. you know add a couple of days to the schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Versus again, versus OCR again, you have to build structure. You have to build uh, more more space and uh, you know to, to run the course essentially. So interesting, interesting. All right. Uh, any other kind of final thoughts, shout outs, or uh, final thoughts you want to share on jujitsu versus OCR? Yeah, I mean, I just I like both of them, right? I've I've I have limited experience in OCR, but it's a it's a fun sport, and it's always I think that's one of the things I like about jujitsu, right? Is it's always different. It was, it's kind of like keeps you coming back for more. It's not the same, you know, the, no race is going to be the same. No competitors are going to be the same. And that's the fun thing with jujitsu, right? It's always changing. Um, just like you guys, it's, people 
come up with crazy new obstacles. Like people are coming out with new techniques all the time in jujitsu and you got to figure out how to get through it. Right. Like people start doing weird leg locks or new chokes and everyone's scratching their heads. Like, all right, how do we, how do we defend this one? And it just keeps on evolving and everyone it's funny over the years, people think, okay, well, this is kind of it, right? This is the set we, we go with. And then, you know, some kid comes along and starts choking people out like from underneath them or something, something crazy. Right. And we're like, all right, it just keeps going. So it's fun. It kind of keeps you young, you know, keeps your mind working, keeps you athletic. So I enjoy it. It's a good sport. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Yeah. Now it's definitely a lot of similarities there with the variability and the, um, you know, just like OCR, like there's a requirement to work, you know, multiple sides. So you can't just be all really right side dominant because that's not, not the most efficient way to compete. So um, good thing, good for overall strength training and brain development. And then on top of that, the, you know, jujitsu, you're essentially your, your heart rate is high and then it, it spikes and then it drops a little bit. And then it's, but you know, you're going through like cycles, which is very similar to OCR and like compromise running where I'm, my heart rate's high the entire race, but at obstacles, it's, it's spiking at certain points. And then I'm having to like regain my composure, you know, reassess and kind of, uh, adjust my work output um, to make sure I men- make the end of the race as fast as possible. So I can definitely see some crossover points there. All right. Uh, we like to ask people, tell us something people would be surprised to know about you. So with your uh, armory and martial arts background here, what would people be surprised to know about you? <laughs> so, Probably the, the surprising fact for me is that I do jujitsu, right? And I, I know that's that's dumb in this conversation because that's what we've been talking <laughs> about. But uh, you know, when I meet people, I'm I'm a pretty average looking white guy, right? I'm not huge. I don't have big muscles, um, and but I, I love to fight, right? I love to grapple, especially. And uh, in the gym, I'm that kid that uh, my instructors over the years they like they like pitting me against the new big dude, right? And because I'm going to, I'm going to try to use technique. I'm going to try to use the minimum force necessary uh, to choke them out just enough to win. Right. And that's kind of like the cool thing about grappling is that it does, it does, it does work like the old Kung Fu movies promised us. <laughs> right? that like, you know, yeah. if you have enough skill, you can overcome this big dude. And uh, like we've, we've had, um, you know, we had like a big football player in the gym the other day and my uh mine's the guy running the class he'll just be like hey john can you roll roll with this dude and uh and then uh you know i'll roll with him and you know you catch him in some some moves that he he just he doesn't quite know not to duck his head right so he's gonna get choked and stuff like that and it's fun and then you know he's kind of like in disbelief afterwards and then the instructor pulls him aside and he's like all right so he's like i just wanted to prove that this stuff works right so like you know that guy he doesn't have bigger muscles than you he's not stronger than you he's not faster than you um, he's, he's using this kind of hidden Kung Fu sport that we've developed on the ground and, uh, it's real and, and you can learn this too, right? Especially if you have the physical gifts, right? Uh, you could you could take it even further. And so that's kind of like the fun thing about being the lightweight guy in the gym is you're kind of like that little hidden weapon that gets to kind of demonstrate how, how it works to people. Um, and it's always weird, you know, when I, uh, you know, meet people and they're asking me about my hobbies and I'm like, Oh, I like fighting. And they're like, Oh really? You know, it, it, I kind of <laughs> get this from like big army guys, right. Who are like power lifters and all this stuff. They kind of give me this, ah, I don't know if you're really a fighter. Right. And I'm like, well, you know, come to the gym, man. Like I'm, I'm going to the gym tonight. <laughs> Odds are I am, you know, come with me, try it, train, you know, and those that do, that take the invitation and come train with me, they're like, they're shocked, right? They're like, I didn't know this stuff was real. You know, I didn't know it worked. Uh, so it's fun. And I, I enjoy that and try to, you know, try to pursue, you know, technique over skill. I mean, uh, like over strength, but, uh, you know, strength and speed and all those things, they will, they will only help you be better, right? And, and combining them with the skill is what wins the fight in the end of the day. So, you know, you can never fully neglect them, but... Yeah, but yeah. Um, great input there. Any any advice you have for maybe people who are um, interested in signing up for jujitsu or are you know maybe just starting out? 
Yeah, it's just don't be afraid to be terrible at it for a long time. <laughs> uh, it's like uh, I try comparing it to to like golf or uh, maybe shooting if people have ever gotten into shooting. But, uh, you know, golf, like you can you can buy some nice clubs and you can go to the, the, the golf course and you'll just be terrible. Or if you've ever gone to top golf, you know, and just like chip some balls into the dirt. But uh, jiu-jitsu is like that. It, there's a big learning curve and it can be tough but um it's it's real right like you're you're investing in something that really works so when you do start um you know winning a match controlling a person or choking them out like you're it's not like you know you're at like the the kickboxing cardio class at your gym you're you're learning a thing that really works and so if you want something that really works it's going to take you a lot of time to develop it uh, so it's it's an investment. Most people are terrible for the first, you know, two to four years, right? And that sounds like a really long time to people who are thinking of it as a hobby. But it, you know, it goes by, and then you know, everyone, every one of us, we're going to be somewhere in, you know, four or five years. You might as well be better at fighting, right? You <laughs> just stick with it. Uh, if you don't, then uh, those dudes at the gym, though, they are they are going to be better at fighting, and so. Um, yeah, just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to fail, right? Like we talk about it in uh, in racing and stuff like that. But there's a there's a little bit of ego kick when someone beats us in a fight that uh, can make you not want to go back to that gym and face that. And getting over that can be tough. Yeah, uh, good good advice. Good stuff there. All right, any final shout outs you want to give friends, family, sponsors, whoever brands you like, etc. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, like. Combative Sports Center is my home gym in Manhattan, Kansas. I uh, kind of consider myself a, you know, student of everybody, right? Because I move around so much. I've trained in a bunch of different styles, but definitely, you know, Professor Sean Roberts um, has been one of my main jujitsu instructors, along with with Joe Wilk and Josh Pfeiffer and all the guys at the gym. Uh, I've, I've had the great fortune of getting to train in Kansas with them a lot. Um, I, all my other belts and stripes I've got from like random people at random, you know, different places, but, uh, you know, it's a great community. Everybody kind of takes care of you and, uh, the jujitsu belts transfer real well, right? Cause you, you roll and either you can roll or you don't at the other gyms. And then, uh, I don't know, just, just my wife for putting up with my, my nonsense and, mm-hmm. you know, piles of dirty, stinky laundry that smell like the collective sweat of 20 other dudes, you know, in our, <laughs> our house all the time and all my, my crazy ramblings and telling her about like, Oh, you know, I found this new choke and all this stuff. And she, she puts up with me. Great. You know, she's a trooper. <laughs> so I love her. She's been super supportive and, you know, takes care of me. Gotcha. All good stuff there. So if any of our listeners want to check out the strength speed website, it is teamstrengthspeed.com. Uh, on there, you'll, You'll find links to all the other podcasts. There, we do have a fighting section if you're more interested in the martial arts stuff. And uh, I've broken down the podcasts that are specifically related to martial arts in that fighting subsection. You can go there and click on, I think it's like knowledge or something like that under the fighting uh, tab. And you can just listen to the martial arts ones. Or you can go back and listen to the, some of our older episodes. We've got over 200 episodes. If you're interested in more on the mindset of endurance athletes or just comp- competing in general, uh, my newest book on endurance is available on Amazon, digital and hard copy. You can pick it up there. It's also recently released on Kindle Unlimited. So if anyone who has Kindle Unlimited, you can read that for free. You just go in and click download and bring it to your device and then, you know, read through the pages. Or, you know, if you want, just flip through the pages. That helps too because I get it like a penny every time someone reads a page or something. Some ridiculously low amount of money for reading uh, for all the, the writing I've done. And then if you... Um, you know, John, I work with him in the army. If anyone's interested in more of some army stories, some army backstory and some of the endurance challenges I've done that have raised money for veterans. My biography is also available on audible, uh, Amazon and, uh, off my website. So if you like audiobooks, great thing to listen to on your drive, you know, to and from work or cross training, going for a run or whatever. And then a digital version available for download on Amazon. And then the hard copy again, off Amazon or off my website, uh, teamstrengthspeed.com. You can check all that stuff out. And then if anyone wants some like general strength training plans or kind of interested in getting into the world of OCR, maybe you're a jiu-jitsu guy and want to get deeper into OCR, uh, I'd recommend my 
first book, which is the new strength and speed guide to elite obstacle course racing talks about training plans and periodized training and tapering and all that stuff. And, you know, working on grip strength, all the, all the good stuff you need for being a competitive OCR athlete or just improving in your age group. So you guys can check that out. John, thanks again for coming on. Uh, thanks again for uh, beating me up at the gym and uh, teaching me some some good techniques and some moves. I always I always appreciate getting to roll with higher level people. It's uh, like you said, it's a it's always a hit to the ego and it's humbling, but I always find value in learning uh, from uh, the people who've been doing this a lot longer. So I really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, looking forward to training with you some more and some of the rest of the guys. Uh, yeah, anything else? No, thanks for having me on, Evan. Yeah, it's it's pleasure training with you guys, and uh, no, I love it. I hope uh, hope our our group just continues to grow on the base and everything. Just everyone just gets tougher and better. Yeah. So for uh, we the first infantry division has a combatives team, so I've been training there for the last couple of weeks. That's how I ended up running into John. Uh, besides, I I work in the same building as him, but we don't cross paths that often. Um, but yeah, I've been doing. It, it's been it's been brutal for the last three weeks. I've been doing essentially two. Uh, we do training six to eight in the morning, eleven thirty to one, and then on top of that, because I still have to prep for OCR, like I run usually after one of those practices. Um, so it's like I don't know. Every week is a very it's a grind now at this point. And then I I got picked for Ninja Warrior again, so I'm I'm in Kansas City this weekend training for that. So it's uh it's just training on top of training. So busy man. All right, I'll see you around. Thanks again for coming on, and uh, best best wishes on future competitions, and uh, let us know when you're competing again. We'll share some of your stuff on social media. Oh, and where can people follow you? Do you have uh, Instagram or anything like that? Instagram. You broke up there one more time? Uh, just John Jordan on Facebook and Instagram, and uh, there's a bunch of us. I'm the, I'm the jiu-jitsu guy making an angry face in my picture, so that's how you know it's me. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, we'll catch you later. All right. Thank you.